I'm Laura Youngkin of The Brave Millennial. This is Lars Helgeson, CEO of GreenRope and author of CRM for Dummies. I'm Allison Bloom-Fetchstock, the founder and CEO of Know Your Crew. This is Brad Van Dam, president and CEO of Marge Confectionery. And you're listening to High Level Wisdom for New Generation Leaders. Hey, if you're a CEO out there and you're listening to this actual show and you think, wow, I would love to be able to participate and be engaged in such a fascinating discussion. Well, we're looking for you. Feel free to send me an email at chris at highlevelwisdom.com. That's chris at highlevelwisdom.com. Let's set up 15 minutes to talk, learn more about you, your company, and your thoughts on millennial engagements in the C-suites. I look forward to talking with you soon. Maybe you're like many executives who are struggling to understand why your marketing team doesn't seem to get it and your technology team doesn't seem to get it and they all are kind of working back and forth to build and deliver the same product or service that you so deeply care about. Well, I tell you what's missing. You don't have any fortunate discoveries. That's right, you have no fortunate discoveries and you really don't have time for people to look up long enough to focus on the future. That's where Serendipity Interactive comes in. Serendipity Interactive is a full service company that can help you as executives make fortunate discoveries by bringing together your marketing and technology teams together in one place in order to deliver better, higher quality products. If you want to know more about how they work with your organization for your fortunate discoveries, feel free to visit www.serendipityinteractive.com. Now, let's listen to this week's episode. Hey, and welcome to my second part of my interview with Andrew Sykes. Who is he? He is the CEO of Habits at Work. Now, if you did not get an opportunity to listen to the first part of our interview, I tell you, you need to go back right now and listen to it because Andrew not only gives you an understanding and insight into the work that they do at Habits at Work, but more importantly, he really gives you uh, a lot of great direction, understanding tips and advice for you as a company. Uh, More importantly, if you're an employee looking to work your way through that and how does all of these things work together, your habits and how you perform and uh, your perspective and some of the actions that you personally take. I highly suggest you go back and listen to part one. But if you're hearing you've done that, that is awesome. Let's dive in right now to talking further with Andrew. What does he think about millennials who are looking to take uh, the executive route? More importantly, what tips and advice does he have for us as we look at how these habits are impacting the way we show up at work and at life? Take a listen to the second half of my interview with Andrew Sykes, the CEO of Habits at Work. Absolutely. So when you talk about that executive with some of those good habits, do, do you have like a, and you don't necessarily have to name the company, but do you, do, you, do you have a really good story of a company that when you've gotten an opportunity to sit with that CEO, you've, you've got a chance to listen and see what's going on with that management or that leadership team, and you realized while this is a company that really gets it, they 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 have it down, you know, once you all kind of got engaged with helping them dealing with some of the issues. You, you have any stories like that that maybe you could kind of share really quickly? Yeah, you know, I've, I've seen some 
amazing companies, but I think the, the more interesting ones are stories of transformation. So I'll give you an example of that. It's, it's an organization that's a school district, so it's not a for-profit, but it has the same kind of organizational challenges. And I remember meeting with the senior leadership group, and they were frustrated about, in particular, concerns they had with the health of their several thousand employees. And what the frustration was caused by was, you know, they'd spent a lot of time and effort building a health and wellness program for their employees, and it was making no difference at all. No one was participating. No one seemed to care. And the conversation that we, we had was about why is no one seeming to care about something that is ostensibly one of the things we all wish for in our life, which is to be healthy. And I really saw the light bulb go on in this team of executives as they realized two things, which is, number one, no one really does what they're told to do. We tend to do what we see others who we like and trust doing. And so the, the first insight they got was, it's no wonder no one is participating when we as a leadership team aren't visibly leading from the front, being role models for the kind of behavior we want our employees to model. We're sending this message that it's just not important enough for us to do it, but we want you to do it because we tell you to. And humans hate being told what to do. So that was the first transformation, is to see them have that light bulb moment. But then what was really beautiful to watch was to see them effectively lead the charge and, and really take on living by example what it looks like to be a healthy, effective educator. And, you know, they changed the message in their school district from we have a wellness program to encourage you to be healthy because it will allow you to live longer, which no one cared about, frankly. And they crafted a new message which said, we expect you and ourselves to be a role model for the health habits of our students, knowing that students that exercise get better grades in math and English, and that educators who exercise have more mindfulness and stamina during the day, they're better educators. And frankly, we're being asked by employers to produce graduates who are in the best shape of their lives, rather than send them people who are already struggling with obesity and diabetes. Wow. And in a matter of three months, that new message had transformed the district. They had 4,000 active educators as advocates of change for the health of themselves, their kids, and even taking home the message to improve the health habits of their families. And wow. Now that is fascinating. And, and, and I will say I am nowhere near in the realm of the science and I'm just an outsider and a spectator, but I, I observe a lot of things. And one of the things that you just mentioned that I find very interesting, um, and, and, and you let me know if your data kind of even speaks to this is you mentioned people tend to do what they see those that they trust and follow and like to. I liken that to if you watch children, like to me, children are like the the purest version of everything we as adults are trying to get other adults to do. <laughs> um, and I feel like, yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's like if you watch kids and they're, you know, in a playground, right, even if they don't know each other. But if they if if you just let them be and you don't try to influence the environment at all with our adult you know, fears and tactics, kids will tend to do that without anyone telling them to. 
They will work together. They will play together. If they have a, you know, if you see even, you know, older kids, you know, and, and the and the one that they like, you know, or has some influence in the room, you can quickly point out who has the influence and who can get the kids to all the other kids to do something that they normally wouldn't do, even if their parents yelled and screamed it, you know, at the top of their lungs. And I just feel like kids is there data that shows that, you know, that that children tend to already you know, when we're kids, we already kind of have that going. And what is what is what happens when we turn into adults that we get? <laughs> I don't know what the best word is. Stupid. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what the word is, but <laughs> why, why is it that is so hard for us? Because I'm, you know, I'm big on this kind of stuff because I, I do a lot of training and development. And I real and I tell people all the time, some people say, Chris, what do you do every day? I said, well, I just train, you know, older children. That's really <laughs> and then sometimes it's fun and sometimes it's just it's the worst thing on the planet. But is there data that kind of supports any of that? And why is it that when we get so when we get the older we get, the harder it is for us to, you know, do. But when we're babies and kids, it's like, you know, pick another seven year old that every kid likes. And all of a sudden they're on a you know, they're turning vegan. Right. Because they just love it. What is that? Yes. Firstly, I, I appreciate your worldview and I, I share that. And without being demeaning to anyone, I do think we would all benefit by assuming that we're all just grown-up kids. And there is a lot of research to back this view. Uh, I'll share a bit of that with you. You know, there is a very rich science now that you might label the science of social contagion, which is how our behavior infects or influences the behavior of those around us and vice versa. And I think one of the things that gets in the way is this assumption that as adults, we are not subject to this influence. You know, we worry about our kids and their peer pressure and their bad influence of their teenage friends or vice versa. And then we assume magically as we turn 21 that that all evaporates. <laughs> and the research shows actually quite a, a humbling thing, which is as we age, we tend to be more influenced by, a fewer, by fewer people with whom we spend more time, who we like more and we trust more because we get you know, more selective as we age. So at high school, there may be 4,000 kids around us all influencing us. And by the time we're 65, we may have four or five close colleagues and family friends who have a disproportionate impact on us. So I think the, the first barrier is just this assumption that as adults, we make all of our decisions on our own when really perhaps 60 plus percent of all the decisions we make each day are strongly, if not completely made with reference to how those around us are behaving. And I'll give you a, a similar example of how we think, you know, as adults, somehow we're different from kids. I have a four-year-old boy and every day he must ask me I know, probably a hundred times, Daddy, please tell me a story. It's his number one most common thing to say. <laughs> he just, you know, everything he wants is another story. And when we look at communication in the workplace, it's facts and figures and charts. And you know, as an actuary, I can tell you that I'm, I'm passionate about facts and figures, but I learned early in my career that a number or a statistic has never and never will convince anyone. Hmm. Whereas stories do that job fantastically. So I think talking about habits of leadership, one of the greatest habits I think that everyone can develop 
is the habit of telling compelling stories as a way of conveying big ideas, transmitting statistics, making a business case, enrolling other people to join you in some adventure. And that's a, a trait that I think comes from four years old until we're 104. We love stories. That's just how the human brain works. Interesting. And, and I think the reason that we love stories so much is because stories engage all five senses. A text doesn't engage all five senses. Uh, you know, an email doesn't. Right. I think when you take people on a journey and they can be emotionally connected to whatever that journey is, uh, I think that's the reason why stories are so powerful. So you mentioned that even the school district, they told a better story. Right. Uh, and they were able to get people higher, highly engaged. So then let me ask you, let's just talk to the executive that they say, Andrew, I hear you. But you know what? I'm noticing unhealthy habits and I know that we're doing it. But you know what? Hey, we're growing. And sometimes, you know, when the company's growing, it's, you know, everybody's kind of, you know, 60, 70 hour weeks. Right. And everybody's putting time in. But even if they're not growing, it's just, a you know, I guess it would the company's just traditionally been one of those where everybody's working really hard. And I'm recognizing those unhealthy habits as an executive. How should they go about addressing that awareness? What 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 should maybe be some of the first steps an executive should take when they notice that, you know what, this model is not going to you know bode well for not even our current in, in talent. You know, I would also say and argue that it also impacts HR execs being able to find new talent because people talk. And when, you know, most people, that's how we find new jobs, right? We talk to somebody else and we say, hey, you know, Andrew, tell me about, you know, working there. Is it fun? And if Andrew says it's a good paycheck, but man, be ready to give up all your weekends and the rest of your life. Right. Right. So, so what, what could a, an executive do who might be listening to this? What are some of those first steps they should take when they notice some unhealthy habits? Okay. Well, I think the first thing to, to do is simply an act of awareness, which is to notice that it doesn't have to be this way. And specifically, that fixing the problem doesn't mean that people are going to work less hard or less long hours, or in some sense, they're going to have to give up the engine of production. You know, I think a lot of leaders are concerned that if we offer a health or wellness program for our employees, then they're going to take time off and they'll be away from their desk and they will be distracted from otherwise doing the work that we want them to. And it's that underlying assumption that I think sends a strong message to employees that you've got a choice. You can either stay at the phones and do your job or you can participate in this wellness program that HR is offering to you. And you know, if you do, expect to have your senior managers and leaders lift that one eyebrow of, of disapproval that says, you know, you might be looking after yourself when the kind of employee we value here is someone who sacrifices themselves for the company. So it's realizing that that, that status quo doesn't need to, isn't working, first of all, and that the solution doesn't require a massive give up by the company or a massive um, sacrifice. In fact, I think the deep insight is we can simply design work to include in the very fabric of work these healthy habits. So just a couple of examples. 
Uh, we spend eight or nine hours a day sitting at our desks, which is a fundamentally very unhealthy thing. And with just a little bit of imagination, you can redesign your office space so that people are up and standing at their desks or walking around having meetings or having standing meetings. In fact, you would argue that that's a much cheaper way of furnishing an office, office for that kind of working. Uh, many companies already offer food to their employees, and it's worth asking, are we offering the kind of food that supports not only health, but optimal performance at work? Or are we giving people access to junk in the vending machines because that's easy and convenient and cheap, and you know maybe even people are asking for that, but it doesn't necessarily serve them. And the same for even things like mindfulness, which occurs for many executives like something that's a little weird and it's not welcome in my company. But if you think about what mindfulness is, it is nothing more or less than concentration with curiosity. So concentration of what's happening in the present and being curious about what's so. What am I thinking? What am I feeling? What's happening around me? And frankly, that's a very good practice to do right before the beginning of a meeting, is to have everyone just get present and perhaps concentrate on the agenda for the meeting and to be curious about what questions might come up or who might uh, have an interest in the outcome of the meeting. I would argue that you could build all of these habits into the work in a way that doesn't just not take away from time at work, but actually supports performance and as a nice side benefit, has people be healthy and happy and secure. So it's rethinking the world of working and designing it almost from the bottom up with this design brief. How can we design work to deliver on an enormous promise to our employees? Not the one which is, you know, come and work for us and we'll pay you handsomely and give you great benefits and maybe some opportunities for growth. But what if we said, come and work for us and we guarantee you that when you leave this company five years or 40 years from now, we'll leave you in the best shape of your life, financially and physically, and we guarantee you that your life will work while you're working for us. Well, you may say, you know, that's an impossible thing to guarantee. So if you want to soften it and say, we'll do everything we can to have your life work as a consequence of your employment with us, who would want to leave a company like that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that what we're starting to see is, um, you know, mo so most people in the objection probably to that would be, well, yeah, that's easy in a startup. Harder when we're talking about companies that's been around 70, 100 years. Right. <laughs> harder, harder, harder to turn around uh, a conservative bank versus the new fintech down the street. Right. With 30 employees. Right. Um, wh what would you say to to the, to the older companies that that have been around for a while, uh, you know, in that regard, is it is it as simple, you know, as starting somewhere in the company or does it really take that transformative approach like the example you shared with the school system where, no, the executives have to do it first and then be able to lead by example? I think that is the, the beginning of the recipe, yes. You know, a lot of big companies talk about culture and culture change and culture transformation. And I think that is the problem to address. You know, our view on culture is it is informed by the way people think. It may be influenced by the values we hold, 
But you know, when you walk into a company, within five minutes you have a sense of the culture. So it must be something, as you said earlier, that is tangible to the senses. It's what you see people doing, it's what you hear people saying. Looked at differently, our view is that culture is nothing more or less than the sum of the habits that people practice in your company. And so if you're a big company, I would argue you actually have a starting advantage over startups, a greater advantage by your scale, your ability to you know, employ people to think about and design solutions for how to create the kinds of habits that are consistent with the culture you say you want, which are, in your best guess or belief, the kinds of behaviors and habits that will future-proof your organization, as big as it may be already. And I would argue that the larger a company is, perhaps the more urgent it is for them to really take back the design of their business, by which I mean thinking about the physical spaces and the systems and the culture and the storytelling to employees so that they survive and prosper as opposed to you know, get defeated by the next Uber that's around the corner as a potentially massive threat to their business. Absolutely. So as we wrap up here, share share with the, the millennial who might be mid in their career, what could they do to be a part of the influence of creating better habits inside of their company? Because I would imagine that most people, even in mid-management and further down, probably feel like, well, I don't, I don't, you know, I can't do anything about this stuff. Right. Um, I don't have the, you know, the cachet within the company. But sometimes I argue about that because I say, well, no, you can actually change where you are. Right. And you can you can be influential in the space that you're in, in your sphere of influence. But what kind of things could that millennial begin to do and, and provide that type of value that could be uh, seen as worth spreading by their leadership? What kind of things could they do? OK, well, I think you've hit the nail on the head with this idea that people should start by being the change they want to see in the world. And I think that involves getting really present to and clear about the example you gave of the playground earlier, that each of us is surrounded by five or 10 or 15 people whose behaviors and habits tomorrow will be fundamentally different depending on the choices we make for ourselves. In fact, our socially contagious effect spreads two or three degrees away from our direct contacts. In other words, if I choose to quit smoking, the 10 people I know and work with will be affected. Certainly some of them will be encouraged to quit smoking if they smoke today, but the people they know and the people they know in turn are affected. So the scientists of social contagion suggests that about a thousand people are transformed or affected or even slightly influenced tomorrow by their habits as you practice today. So my appeal and call to action for millennials will be, number one, do things that have people like and trust you. And some of those are very simple. You know, put a smile on your face, do what you say you will do, and clean up your messes when you don't do what you say you're going to do, which I would describe as having integrity. Both of those build trust and likability, and those are strong drivers for influence. And then realize that you have influence and you know, behave in the way that you would like to see those behaving around you. 
and sit back and watch it happen. And not only will that, I think, be the change you want to see, but I think others will notice you and it'll become infectious. And those are the kinds of people who will be asked to join leadership positions and management committees and ultimately boards of directors and executive positions. Wow. Well, Andrew, this this is definitely a fascinating conversation. And, and I swear, like, I have, like, all the questions that I could ask you, but we, we do have to keep this to, 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 to our shorter time. But listen, Andrew, thank you so much for being a person of uh, influence who is actually a doer in this space of helping create better habits. Um, and I love the fact that your company is focused on not just the eating side of things, but the overall person, mind, body and spirit. And so uh, I appreciate you. I know our audience has enjoyed uh, hearing this. And I, I'm sure this is going to be one of the more well replayed uh, <laughs> interviews um, just from uh, what you all offer and provide. So so thank you for everything that you do and, and tell everybody where they can find Habits at Work. Well, firstly, thank you, Chris. It was an honor and a privilege to speak with you and your audience. They can find us at habitsatwork.com, our research lab at bratlab.com. And anyone who's interested is free to email me at andrew at habitsatwork.com. That second at is H-E, so andrew at habitsatwork.com. Well, that wraps up another great week, another great interview, and another great set of just interesting conversations. I hope that you found this interview this week as exciting and as interesting and as um, thought provoking as I did. I want to thank you for your time as an audience, whether you're an executive listening to our show or whether you're just somebody who is uh, younger in their career looking to continue to move forward, or maybe you're just a fan. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for participating. And thank you so much for engaging. And if you don't know a few ways we can engage, I'll tell you now. How about you go through social media? If you're into that, you can find us on three different platforms, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can find us at the handle at High Level Wisdom. All together, you'll be able to find us there. You'll see our logo. Or if you want to leave comments uh, on our website, feel free. You can actually go to www.highlevelwisdom.com and that's where you'll find all of our information even more interviews but i want to thank habits at work i want to thank the ceo andrew for taking his time out and just spending time with me to talk and to be able to share um, his thoughts and his ideas and and how all of these things are playing together that even your habits have a lot to do with how you're showing up to work every day so i hope if you're a millennial you got something out of it and i hope that if you're a baby woman definitely got something out of this well i want to thank you until the next time i hope that you continue to grow and live and learn at a high level take care what if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation where it's not about mission statements but a shared mission at u.s customs and border protection we go beyond to protect more than borders from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.